welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fun Caliber. This week, we're discussing the economic challenges in Europe, destocking, inflation, and supply chain disruptions, and the opportunities in this type of environment. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by Tom Lomeva, who's one of the managers on the elite-rated Janice Henderson European Selected Opportunities Fund. Tom, thank you for joining us today. Good to see you, Chris. And you. Um, let's obviously start, go straight into it. I mean, you, you've co-managed this fund for a couple of years now, but John Bennett, who is well known to our listeners, one of the most sort of veteran European manager, he's obviously retiring next year and he's doing more with his beloved Rangers. Um, will the investment process change? Does the long-standing sort of tenets of what makes this fund work continue? We'll, we'll maybe just talk us through that and will there be any sort of changes we over as well? Yeah, sure. So, so in a word, no. The investment process, the philosophy is absolutely not going to change. And there's a couple of reasons for that. So number one, you know, essentially, John, as you said, veteran fund manager, he hired myself and uh, Tom O'Hara back in 2018 as analysts and, and kind of formed us, not in his own image as such, because that's dangerous, but definitely to have the same kind of process. And we had the same philosophy to begin with. Um, and therefore, this has been sort of a well thought out plan by John, you know, in his older age in terms of what succession planning looks like for the funds that, that, we, that we manage. So as a consequence, no, the, the philosophy, the process is not going to change. And just to remind you know, the listeners of your podcast, what our philosophy is, there's sort of six key strands of DNA that sort of make us up as investors. The first one is follow the cash, which was unpopular for the last decade or so. But actually, what we mean by follow the cash is we like businesses that generate free cash flow. And we love businesses that can take that cash flow and invest it at higher rates of return on investment. And so what it actually means is we like businesses that are valued on that cash flow. So we have a valuation sort of consciousness because we believe that the price you pay today determines your future returns. The second key strand of our DNA is that we like to avoid excessive leverage. So very simply, if a company has too much debt on its balance sheet, we don't like that because if there's an operational change or if the interest rate regime changes, then they can be caught you know, with their trousers down as the tide goes out very quickly. So it's something that we worry about. And so we keep away from those kind of companies. If I take number three and four together, believe in cycles and believe in change, we are mean reversionists. We believe that everything comes back to the mean. We believe that everything is cyclical. And therefore, it gives us an interesting lens to look at every company through. We think that sort of over the last 10 years, it's all been about extrapolation. And you would have seen that. You know, with hyper growth companies thinking that food delivery could continue to grow in the high 20s rate forever, just isn't the way that works. You know, companies will come in and compete away uh, returns and growth. The last two strands give yourself time, clients willing, and be ready to be wrong. Those are very important to us too. And once again, are not going to change. We invest in large capitalization European equities where an investment thesis takes a long time to play out and we have to be patient investors. But we can only be in, uh, you know, as patient as the investors uh, that put money in our fund. And our last round, I said it there, be ready to be wrong. That is about our pragmatism. We are pragmatic investors. And we have this saying, Tom, myself and John, which is when the facts change, we reserve the right to change our mind. Is we never want the investors in our fund to be in a situation where if they look at their performance over the last three to five years, a 
and we've underperformed, that we blame it on any market regime. We are an all-weather fund. We're core, we're agnostic, we're flexible, and we always want to be making and generating alpha for our clients over the long term. You mentioned there, let's obviously go into market and a bit a bit deeper. Obviously, with Europe, there's always something happening, something good, something bad, something in between. But maybe just talk us through the environment for companies in Europe at the moment. You know, you talked about recently about sort of short-term and logical reactions to earnings results. Maybe maybe go into that with a bit of detail and just give us a snapshot of things in Europe if possible. Yeah, so if I, if I take the first question, it's it's something that I find absolutely fascinating, especially when talking to, to clients more directly, is there's this understanding that when you invest in our fund, or sorry, misunderstanding, I should say, that you're investing in domestic European companies. That's absolutely not the case. So what I want to do is sort of disaggregate that immediately, which is because we deal with you know, big, big European companies, actually their revenue bases are very diversified. So if I look, you know, at uh, at one of our funds that we run, our pan-European fund, it'll be very similar names for, for European focus. You know, our, the revenue exposure, when you add up all the companies in the fund to Asian emerging markets, about 40%. Developed Europe is about 33 and North America, it's about 26. And actually we're underweight revenue exposure versus the benchmark in developed Europe and overweight Asian emerging markets and North America. And the reason why I'm sort of laboring this point is because it is very important for us, for people to understand that investing in our fund, you're investing in large European companies that are global champions in what they do. And they just happen to have been born and founded and are now listed in Europe. So that's just one thing I want to say on our fund. But, you know, you're right, is, is there are always things happening in Europe, twas ever thus. I mean, I myself in Belgium, I'm, I'm from Belgium, and I can tell you that it, there's complicated uh, political uh, and social situations out there as there are in other European countries. But the, the reality is, I think at the moment, companies are finding it tough because they don't really know whether end demand is going to pick up. For instance, I had a meeting with the CEO of a chemicals company that operates globally yesterday. Volumes are down 13% in Q2. And it's because there's this word that's being uttered or has been uttered since December nonstop, which is destocking. So their customers are getting rid of inventories ahead of an anticipated recession. But this recession hasn't come yet, and we keep waiting. It's the recession that people keep pushing out further and further. Likewise, companies have got to deal with you know, inflation, be it uh, at the raw material levels so in terms of when they make their goods, uh, you know, all the, the input costs in, into those goods going up. Likewise, on services, you know, labor rates are going up. And so inflation is an issue that they have to deal with. And there have been also supply chain issues. So, you know, supply chains have been fragmented because of COVID. And I'm sure we'll talk about it later in terms of what companies are doing to respond to that. So the environment hasn't been easy, I think, for any big companies for a while. But what we focus on as an investment team is buying companies that have very good management, that are great operationally, and that can deal with any kind of macro headwinds and operational difficulties that are caused by the macro. Um, and then in terms of the, the sort of last question, which is short-term and illogical reactions to earnings results, what I would say is the beauty of being a, a long-term investor is the fact that when there are these reactions to or, or share price reactions to company results, 
we can take advantage of them. And the reason why we're seeing more of this now is, is the, the investor or the market has become increasingly short-term in nature, and that's partially due to the rise of, of, of shorter-term platform hedge funds, as well as uh, quant-type funds. And so there will be this issue where going into a company results, positioning will really matter to these people who have very short-term time horizons. Whereas if there is an illogical you know, reaction to a company earnings release, say the stock is down, 5% on pretty much no news just because uh, you know that's the earnings number didn't realize exactly the expectations of of investors and if you've got a long term time horizon like ourselves of 3 to 5 years we can take that opportunity and add some more or find an entry point to a stock are you finding quite a lot of opportunity in that sense then given the short term nature sentiment perhaps with Europe you know nature of your companies perhaps makes greater opportunities because they're so global and they're quite core in their focus. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to the extent we're actually, um, you know, recently I talked about destocking uh, and there's a number of industries where destocking has been harsh and, and, you know, and demand has also been a bit of a struggle. But if we take you know, one of our largest uh, positions in the fund, uh, which is UPM Kimini, which you might ask me about later, that's one where it had to cut uh, its uh, profit guidance for this year between 30 and 40%. And actually on the, on the day of results, it was down two. And it's kind of like the, the last cut and actually ended up plus six. And we were buying when it was far down below that because we could see that the trough in earnings because of the markets that it operates in was ahead of us. And the market needs to be a forecasting uh, you know, mechanism uh, at all times, and sometimes things just become really quite overdone and throws up opportunities for us. And we've seen it specifically actually in the cyclical space where recessionary fears have gotten so bad, valuations uh, were running way ahead of those fears and therefore your share prices were down and created opportunities for us to be able to buy and increase our exposure to certain companies in anticipation of when you know volumes and end demand will turn. You mentioned UPM there. I was going to ask you about that later, but I feel like now might be the best time to ask you. So obviously, climate change is at the front and foremost in the news at the moment with sort of high temperatures and flash flooding. Maybe just, you know, UPM is looking at a future beyond fossil fuels. Maybe just give us a bit of an insight into that company and, and maybe the, the attraction and the, the sort of investment case in your eyes for, for that holding. Yeah, I mean, it, it's UPM is is sort of a complicated business insofar as it actually has six different separate business units, but they all can talk to each other in various ways and complement each other. But ultimately, the best way to try and understand it is it's sort of got, it tries to combine bio and forest value chain together, something they call BIFOR. But they traditionally were a pulp and paper producer, and they're one of the largest communication paper uh, sort of sellers uh, here in Europe. So that's to say, you know, newspaper, magazine paper, et cetera, et cetera. And they realized that that business was declining, you know, at, I'm not going to say rapidly, but slow and gradual decline. And they, they use the cash from that business to invest in other areas. And the other areas they, they have invested in where they see growth are in biorefining and biochemicals. So to your point about sort of looking at a future beyond fossil fuels and, and what it is that UPM is, is trying to do, 
is it's it's trying to use its value chain, so the natural products that it grows because it owns forests, and from there create renewable solutions to the to the problems that the world sees. So, for instance, it's investing in creating a plant in Germany, in a place called Luna, and what you'll find with that plant is uh, the the product that's coming out of it is go, is going to try and replace. PET bottles, say for Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is actually going to be one of their first customers. Um, likewise, it's looking at uh, um, building a biorefinery plant in Rotterdam. And what that will be, it'll be, it will be taking wood and essentially trying to make a diesel equivalent from it to be able to put into trucks. And obviously the beauty of wood is that you can keep growing it out of the ground. So the way in which UPM uh, has changed over the last 10 years. And actually, I had a meeting with the CEO uh, a week and a half ago, who unfortunately is going to be retiring in the next 18 months, because he's very much been the leader, leader in all of this, is taking cash flow from mature and potentially declining businesses and finding growth avenues in sustainable uh, and growing businesses. And that is the beauty of that business is the reason why it has six separate business units is because some of them are mature and they are feeding the growth of other businesses um maybe just um on the portfolio in general now um obviously very long-term active future and you've got a few long-term themes in the portfolio deglobalization onshoring of supply chains electrification we've already talked about some of the stuff regarding energy efficiency automation digitalization i mean the list goes on ai um maybe let's mm. just highlight and give an example of each of sort of how they are implemented in the portfolio and perhaps a stock example as well. Yeah, I mean, the beauty of, of all those thematics that, that you just pointed out that are play in the portfolio is that they're sort of interlinked. Because if I take the energy efficiency slash electrification theme, that one is not, uh, is not mutually exclusive from, say, automation or AI or the onshoring of supply chains because... Uh, companies which we're invested in, like you know, people at home or you know Siemens quite well. They might know Schneider as well, but we own both of those in the portfolio, and they are uh, essentially electrical capital goods companies. So they make stuff like circuit breakers, they make low voltage stuff like switches, but they also make things that go in factories, drives motors. Um, and they make un uninterruptible power supplies. So, so if the power goes off in a building, the backup power is, is them who have installed it that comes on immediately. And I guess the important thing for these guys is, is that given the war in Ukraine and how it's focused people's minds on, on having energy efficiency uh, in any building that is run by a company or even in your own home, quite frankly. I mean, we all remember the gas uh, crisis and electricity prices going up. It's uncomfortable for everyone. The CEOs and CFOs of big companies are no different. So they are investing in making sure that their buildings are you know, more electrified, more energy efficient. Because, because energy prices went up so high, the payback on those investments in terms of the number of years to get back your money came, back, came down fairly quickly. And then on the other side of that, in terms of playing into the, sort of the, the other themes you've talked about, is, is because of the COVID uh, uh, supply chain disruption I mentioned earlier, a lot of companies, there's nothing more annoying for a company than to have the demand for a product or a service, but not being able to fulfill that demand and book the revenue. And that was what was happening in COVID with supply chains being broken, is somebody wanted a product, but couldn't get their hands on it. 
uh, because that last little piece was missing because it was stuck on a boat somewhere in Asia. And so what we're seeing now is a lot of companies are bringing back their supply chains closer to home. In fact, we call it friendshoring here or nearshoring to friendlier uh, countries so that it's, they have easier access to it. What does that mean? Well, it means a factory needs to be built. So you need to have steel that's put in there. You need cement, uh, you know, and then you've got to fill the factory uh, and you actually should probably insulate it and, and put some walls in it and, and a roof on it too. But then you've got to fit, fill the factory with equipment to be able to process whatever good it is that you produce. And the, the you know, and going back to the global champions in Europe uh, argument I was making earlier, we have a number of them in our funds, so Siemens, Schneider, and there's others that are based in Europe, also that are uh, listed in Europe that we can also uh, talk to and potentially invest in, like ABB and Legrand. Um, so that I, I don't want to say you know this thematic is mutually exclusive from any other, because actually the way the world is going and where fiscal stimulus is going to, if you think about the amount of money that the US alone, so if you take the uh, IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, the IIJA and the, the Chips and Science Act, there's a trillion of fiscal stimulus going into trying to improve uh, the, the grid uh, infrastructure in the US alone. And these companies are going to sell into that. And we haven't even talked about the amount of stimulus coming out of Europe. So these thematics for us are very much driven, one, by corporates' desires to invest, but also the government backing up the need to sort of upgrade the grid. And then lastly, I'll just say something quickly on automation uh, and AI. In automation, what you'll find is companies, because they're struggling with uh, the increase in wage costs, where they try and find productivity is by automating processes. Uh, so once again, they've got to go to the Siemens and the Schneiders of this world who sell the equipment that go into these factories uh, to be able to further automate and find those efficiency gains. And sorry, I, I know I've been go talking for a while now, but AI you know, is the, is the buzzword of, of this year for sure. And what you see with AI is actually you need more uh, compute power, you need uh, more data center Power. And once again, if you think about the power management of these places, Schneider and uh, Siemens are the ones who do the, the power management systems uh, in data centers. And therefore, they're also exposed to that theme and should see good growth. Um, let's just uh, finish with a couple of holdings. So both Airbus and Safran, they're sort of both, I mean, these are back into the travel and transport sector. Maybe just talk us through that. Is that a support for that sector or more of a just sort of a defensive position in general? Maybe just give, give us a bit of an insight into both. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a fantastic question because I suppose it's another thematic at play is, is during COVID when we sat down thinking, is the world really never going to get on a plane again? Well, after being locked in my house for, for months on end, my desire to travel was completely uh, uh, un, you know, unbridled. I, I wanted to get out and, and, and travel again. And, and I think that's the thing is, is even business meetings, you know, we, we, we still are traveling now and going to Seville. So our view was that air traffic growth would return to pre-pandemic kind of levels. And it is moving in that direction. The other interesting thing is, so in developed markets, you know, we all know that we have a desire to travel more 
and and we're still going to be doing business face to face and and flying to different countries to see people but actually in emerging markets there's there's so many people that haven't yet got on the plane and this was kind of born out at the paris recent paris air show earlier this summer where two uh, indian airlines so indigo and air india respectively ordered 500 and 250 aircraft from airbus that takes airbus's backlog to 8000 planes so at the current rate of production uh, that they do every year. That's a 10-year backlog. So they have visibility on the amount of planes they need to produce for the next 10 years. So we know what their growth is going to look like. And likewise, Safran, which is the other holding you mentioned, Chris, is uh, an engine manufacturer and their engines go on Airbus planes. And so they're sort of directly linked with the beauty of Safran is because once Airbus ships a plane, it doesn't really have an aftermarket service business. Whereas with, a, with a, um, an engine, what you end up finding is that in five to eight years after it's first put into uh, to a plane and flown, is it needs to go back into the the uh, garage or, or the the workshop and have an engine overhaul. And so, you know, because a planes fly, you know, as you'll probably know, Chris, you know, the last uh, BA seven four sevens were retired. I think it was in twenty twenty, and they were flying something like forty years. Aircraft engines last a long time and they go through various workshop cycles. Safran also has great visibility on one, selling the original engine to uh, the airframe manufacturers, i.e. Airbus. And then they have visibility on when those, depending on the number of flight hours, which we think are increasing because obviously air traffic is increasing. They have visibility on when those engines need to come into the workshop and they charge for that too. So in many ways, it's it's backing into the travel and transport sector, like you said, but it also feels fairly defensive because barring any other further pandemics, we are fairly sure that air traffic growth should continue and the companies that you want to invest in to be able to take advantage of that, once again, are global champions based in Europe, and that is Airbus and Safran, and there's a couple of others too that you have mentioned. Tom, thank you very much for joining us today and talking us through all things Europe and beyond. Thanks very much, Chris. It was a pleasure. The Janet Henderson European Selected Opportunities Fund is a high conviction portfolio of 40 to 50 mega and large cap stocks. To learn more about the Janet Henderson European Selected Opportunities Fund, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. Mm-hmm.